this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. We'll actually start at the last part of verse 5. It'll be on the screens, or you can open your Bible or turn on your Bible, whatever it may be. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5 at the end. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Valsilvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we, we pray now as we wrap up this letter, um, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, God, to, uh, to hear your word to us today. Lord, so that we might be strengthened in our faith to stand firm in your grace. God, give us ears to hear, myself included, so we might look more like Jesus. So we might, Lord, love one another like Jesus loves us. So we might go out into the world, Lord, with um, this week with thankful hearts pointing back to you for all that you've given us to be thankful for. Lord, I just pray that now you would help us as we go to your word to understand, to apply it to our hearts, and to live it out in the days ahead. By your grace in Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. A few years back, my wife and I uh, traveled to Australia. We always wanted to take one big trip uh, before we uh, started having kids, and so um, we were able to get that in, and we traveled to Australia, and we did all kinds of planning for this trip, and uh, and, and so we were going at a time of year where we checked into um, the, the swimming options around the ocean, so we went to northeast Queensland. Um, it was winter down there. We thought, okay, we'll go far enough north that it'll, be, it'll still be warm, and we'll be able to swim. Um, it's not when, apparently, there was like jellyfish season down there. All right, you don't want to swim then, um, and there's uh, there was great white sharks down there, all right? And so they have seasons where they're more present, and we checked in. We were good. It was not that season. Well, we get there, and we, well, first off, we we get there, and we drive up, and we have to, like, get on this ferry boat and drive, like, uh, that takes us across this crocodile-infested river. That should have really been our first hint um, at what was coming. But we uh, continue to drive up into the rainforest some more, and we get to the hut, and we're just excited to then get to the beach um, that we're going to go to and um, just spend some time in the ocean and those kinds of things. We get there, though, and the person that was hosting us says, whatever you do, don't get in the water. 
what in the world are you talking about? We thought we checked into all this. It was like, we've lost people. It's like, what? okay, tell me, what's going on here? Um, and so uh, apparently crocodiles, though, live on either side of the beach. All right, so there's the, like kind of the swamp in between the, um, the forest and then the, the beach, and then there's the ocean, and they go back and forth. And so um, she was warning us, they literally lost people um, on those beaches. And so um, Becca and I ended up like, we, we were so nervous for the first like three or four days. Like we like, we laid on the beach like perpendicular um, to it because we were like, I'm gonna lay this way and look towards the swamp, you look towards the ocean, We'll try somehow to relax in this craziness. Um, because on top of crocodiles, they had this bird called a cassowary, which is like an emu, but with a razor-sharp claw, and it runs 30 miles per hour. It's like a practically a raptor, okay? Um, and so then we find out while we're there that, hey, you got to be careful about the, um, the leaves you touch, all right? Because some of the leaves on, this, uh, on the hikes you go by um, actually have like glass-like shards on them, all right? And so just everything in Australia is out to get you is what we found out, all right? And we were just like, we just want to get back to New Zealand where there's not snakes and there's nothing poisonous and just like back to the Hobbiton, like Shire Hole, all right? Um, and, and, um, and yet we, we did find a way to enjoy it, um, but we just spent the first three or four days com- complete nervous wrecks. Because at night even, like you could hear uh, this bird just squawking, and Becca would swear to you it sounded like a child screaming, okay? But it was just a bird. Everything there is just out to get you. There are threats around every turn. Um, and in, in many ways, um, it, it was because... I mean, Australia is just not our home, right? Like, we're not used to those things. Um, because we came up on a hike one time um, with a cassowary about 100 yards away. Um, Becca's immediate response was the opposite of what was supposed to happen, which was never run, right? Well, she turns to run, and I grab her, and we slowly, like, get out of the way, back behind a corner. But then we come up on some, like, legit Aussies that are there, and they're like, and we're like, you get, don't go that way. Like, there's a cassowary. They're like a cassowary. And they go straight towards it. We're like, you guys are crazy. But then we kind of follow along. We figure we can outrun them. And anyway, um, so, uh, but it's because it wasn't our home. Like, we weren't used to these things. They were. They were more comfortable. But, but these threats, though, the reality is we live in a world that's not our home. That's what we've been talking about this whole time in the book of 1 Peter is that we are exiles in this world. This world is not our home, and because of that, there are threats around every turn. We live in a world that is filled with adversities, with suffering. We have an adversary that is out for us, as we read in the text. And there is potential for anxiety around every turn. So many things are threats to our stability, our hope, and our peace. We really see two major threats in this text. In verse 8, we see the adversary. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. And that's intense. And we're not talking about some character red guy with a pitchfork, right? And we're talking about a real spiritual being at work to destroy any part of God's creation that he can possibly destroy. He's our adversary because he was first God's adversary. And he is at work today in the world to do anything he can to undermine God's kingdom and God's people. That's our adversary who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. 
And then we face all kinds of adversity. In verse 9, we see, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering or adversities are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, as a result of the adversary, as well as our, our own sinful hearts and the brokenness of this world, we can expect all kinds of sufferings, especially what we've talked about often in, in this journey through First Peter, persecutions for our faith. And though Peter brings these up, these threats, he wants us to know how to respond to these threats. The reality is, is they are only secondary threats to the main point of what he's talking about here. These are major threats. They're, they're things we need to consider. We need to be ready and prepared to respond to. But the problem that we really face, the greatest threat, is not these things. The greatest threat is ourselves. Your greatest threat is you. In verse 5, at the very end, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Your greatest threat is you. It's your pride. My greatest threat is me. That seems so harsh. But Peter doesn't say this from some high and lofty state. But rather, he says it as one who has suffered at his own hands, his own pride, time and again. In verse 5, as he quotes Proverbs 3, 34, Peter wraps up the last section that we looked at last week. And it really seems to put kind of this nice, neat little bow on the letter. If he would end there and just kind of then finish off with his by Sylvanus stuff, it would have made perfect sense. But instead, it's like that Proverbs 3.34 quote just like launches him into reflection on his own life struggles. This verse seemingly triggers him to, to just launch into his heart overflowing with key lessons in life that he's learned. Because he shares this pastoral plea in which he gives us his heart. This last portion of the letter is just drenched in Peter's biography and the story of his life. He longs for us to avoid the mistakes that he made, to avoid the traps that he fell into. See, he's experienced firsthand how easy it is to lose sight of Jesus. And it's not some external threat that, that causes this, but it's the internal posture of our own hearts toward pride. And the greatest threat to the hope, peace, and stability of your faith is you. Of Peter's faith was him. To my faith, it's me. So Peter doesn't call us to humility in verse 6. And he doesn't rebuke us for our pride from some judgmental position. But he pleads with us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He pleads with us to do that because he himself has experienced the instability, the hopelessness, and the anxiety that comes with pride. And let's think a minute about Peter's history with pride. Just look at the, the story of his life, the reality that his greatest threat really was himself, and he saw that time and again. So we see him face the adversary really head on, very clearly in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, if you want to follow along, we'll hit a few of these verses here looking at, at Peter's story. In Luke chapter 22, um, starting in verse 31, we see this. Jesus speaking to him, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan had asked 
Jesus to sift Peter like wheat. Praise God, he, he prayed for him. But when we look at this, what is, what is Peter's response to this? Surely Peter would, would be humbled. That, that, hey, he, I mean, Jesus even acknowledges that, that he's going to fail. He, he prays that his faith wouldn't fail, but he says, and when you have turned again, acknowledging that, hey, you are going to turn, but when you've turned back to me, then do this. Peter should be humbled in that moment. But instead, no, this is his response in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. Peter in his pride says, no, Jesus, I won't falter. You're wrong. I am not going to give in. I'm stronger than that. This should, if nothing else, have caused him to stay alert. But when we jump ahead just a few short hours, when, when Jesus is taking a few of his disciples into the garden with him as he's preparing himself for the greatest trial that any human being would ever face, as Jesus is preparing himself in the garden, he brings several of his disciples with him. And then in verse 40, he says, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's concerned about them entering into temptation. And then, and then we jump ahead to the end of that time in the garden, and he finds them sleeping in verse 45, rather than praying. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew they had an adversary prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter had an adversary in Satan who was prowling around, seeking to devour him, and he was even made aware of it by Jesus himself. And yet in his pride, he did not stay alert. He did not resist, but rather he apathetically left the door wide open. And as a result, when adversity came, he failed. He wasn't prepared for the temptation that would come. When he faced adversity, which is, was just the suffering that he would face, that Jesus talked to him about in verse 9, or well, that we see in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5, that suffering that the brotherhood experiences throughout the whole world, when Peter faces that later on in chapter 22, this is what happens. He wasn't prepared or alert, and as a result, he fails. Verse 54, they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. Here's the opportunity where he said, I will follow you to prison or to death. But instead, verse 57, Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord 
like Jesus himself, turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that moment. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That is sobering. Time after time, Peter was confronted with either suffering with Jesus or denying him, and out of a prideful belief that he can better protect himself than Jesus could in that moment, he anxiously responds with denial. Just like Peter, your greatest threat is you, your pride. That's why he says in verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Look, church, when we seek stability, hope, and peace in and of ourselves, we put ourselves in opposition to God. Do you hear that? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We make ourselves his enemy, though. He doesn't force us into that position. When we choose pride over humility before him, we make ourselves the enemy of the God of the universe. Do not be fooled. The world is carried about with anxiety over all kinds of adversities and adversaries. And the news is filled with them on a daily basis. We're obsessed with enemies without us, and yet the adversities of this world and the adversary that's on the prowl, they're temporary. The one adversary you do not want to have is God. And so the greatest threat to the exile life is pride because it puts us in opposition to the God of the universe, and that is a fearful thing. We choose that when we choose pride, when we choose to try to protect ourselves, when we choose anxiousness and trying to figure out all the ways that things could go wrong so that we can somehow try to ensure they don't go that way. We open ourselves in that pride to those secondary threats. Rather than actually defending ourselves against those threats, we actually open ourselves up to them. It seems backward, but it's actually when we try to protect ourselves in pride that we become vulnerable because we, we put ourselves in opposition of the one who can and will protect us. The suffering we face in this life and the schemes of Satan are only threats to our hope and our peace when we are prideful. That doesn't mean we, we can't be hurt. That doesn't mean there can't be threats against our, our physical life, but they are only threats against us ultimately against our hope and our peace and our faith when we're prideful because pride makes us vulnerable to these things. It makes us vulnerable to these things in a couple ways. One, pride makes us vulnerable to the lies of the adversary. Like we've seen with Peter, we, pride makes us vulnerable to the lies of the adversary. One, pride leads us to assume we aren't vulnerable. Like Peter. No, 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 Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to stick with you. All these other disciples... Like, they may abandon you, right? But I, I will go with you to prison and even death. Pride makes us vulnerable to the lies of the adversary because we assume we aren't vulnerable. And so as a result, we just sleepily and apathetically consume the lies that the world throws at us. Rather than being alert, we begin to buy into lies without even knowing it. 
Like, I'm not talking about watching out for fake news on, on Facebook or something, but I'm talking about something actually much more sly and deceptive. As we consume media and messages from culture, some of us develop a slow slide into consumerism. As, as we consume those messages, some of us develop a callousness towards violence, a desensitization towards an unbiblical sexual ethic, or an idolization of a host of th- good things even like an idolization of our our rights or our family or our achievements. Pride makes us vulnerable to these kinds of lies because we're not alert to how deceptive they are and how they're just creeping in through all kinds of means. Pride also makes us vulnerable to the temptation of adversity, to the temptation that suffering is. See, adversity isn't bad in and of itself. It's an opportunity for either humble faith on our part or prideful anxiety. Pride leads us to anxious concern over what other people think and the consequences of what they think of us. That's what, Pe- that's what happens to Peter, right? He's confronted with adversity, of the, the opportunity to either stay with Jesus and own up to his relationship with him in front of everyone as Jesus is facing suffering, and to suffer with him, possibly face those consequences, or to deny him. And pride leads us to that anxious concern, though. Well, what are they going to think of me? How do I ensure that you know, they don't think I'm foolish, or they don't think I'm um, some kind of weird Bible thumper, or they don't think I'm you know, like one of those kinds of Christians, or they don't just write me off as someone who doesn't you know, acknowledge science, or all these other things? But Scripture clearly tells us that the world will believe we're foolish, that we will suffer for our faith. But pride leads us to run from that, to try to protect ourselves out of anxiousness. And then the temptation of adversity also, we see that pride leads us to try to anxiously control things. See, pride trusts in self for protection rather than God. And so as we try to avoid adversity, we, we get anxious because we're conceiving of all the possible ways that something could go wrong. Our imagination just runs wild. And we, we allow that to happen because we're like, if I can just think of all the ways it can go wrong, then I can somehow try to manage the risk of the situation and I can fix it. Pride leads us to anxiously try to control things. We see this in Peter's walking on water. He doesn't start in that anxiousness, right? He, he sees Jesus walking on water and he says, hey, Jesus, call to me and I'll step out. And he's looking at Jesus and he's focused on him and he's, he's waiting for him to tell him to get out of the boat and follow. He doesn't assume, he doesn't pridefully assume and get out of the boat, but rather he waits for Jesus. And when Jesus calls, he then steps out in humble faith. But then something happens while he's out there. It's not the external storm that actually sinks him in the ground. It's not the adversity around him. But rather, it's he begins to pay attention to all of that over Jesus. And he begins to have anxiety because he's trying to figure out, oh, like, like, what am I, how am I going to keep myself up? Like, I'm out here, like, there's no way I can actually stay up. And he starts thinking about I, 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 rather than Jesus, who's the one who invited him out there. And his anxiousness in his pride leads him to begin to sink. We are so like Peter. We are so like Peter. 
And so whether or not you fall into one of these traps of pride, we all wrestle with pride in some form or fashion at times. And as a result, we set ourselves in opposition to God as his adversaries, and we make ourselves truly vulnerable. See, the good news is, is that while for the prideful, God is our adversary, God is not an adversary like the devil. He is not prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He opposes the prideful because of its destructive nature in us. In fact, it's for our good and it's out of love that he opposes pride in us. And even better news, as he opposes us, as we're his enemies, he showed his love for us according to the book of Romans. He showed his love for us that while we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. God sent his only son for those who stand in opposition to him. That's amazing news. God loves and longs to restore us despite our destruction of ourselves and our destruction of the world around us that he created. Despite our prideful running from his good design, he loves us so much that he would send his son to die for us. And we see that restoration, that grace poured out in Peter's life as well. Peter's restoration we see in in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the dead, he's with his disciples and he takes Peter after breakfast In John chapter 21, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you? You love me. And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, uh, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Three times, Peter asks if he loves him. One for each of his denials. And in that, Jesus is acknowledging Peter's love for him, and he restores him three times. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And he goes on to affirm that, that, hey, that promise that you made about dying for me, you'll get to make good on that. That's not a punishment. That's an invitation to, to, to suffer with Jesus, to fill up the afflictions of Christ as Paul talks about it. He's, uh, he's restoring him fully and completely. The gracious response of Jesus is the promise of verse 10 that we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 here. The promise that that after suffering a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a beautiful response from God. 
And that's the same restoration that Peter enjoyed, we can enjoy, because we fail him. We fail him every day, right? And we need that restoration every day. But sometimes we need it in a more significant way, just like Peter needed it. After the resurrection there on the beach. And so church, look, the the hope is not just to get our act together. The hope is not just to, to try to work ourselves up from doing pride. But our only hope, while our greatest threat is us, our only hope is God. Our only hope is humbly entrusting ourselves to God, our faithful, good creator and savior, who though he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Grace that restores, that confirms, that strengthens and establishes us. Where can we find stability, hope, and peace in the midst of this unstable, chaotic world? Not in ourselves. Not in our own strength, not in our own pride, not in our own ability to get things together, but in God's grace and God's grace alone. And that's what Peter's reminding us in, in that last little greeting section at the end, that, that hey, most of us, we read through a book and we get to that and we're like, okay, yada, 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 right? But he, he actually, in the midst of verses 12 to 14, reminds us why he wrote this letter in the first place. In verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Find your only hope in God. Stand firm in God's grace. Look, stability is kind of Peter's deal. And I mean, when, when Simon comes to follow Jesus and he's invited to follow him, P- Jesus renames him Peter, which is the word for rock. And it's focused on, so Peter himself, his whole life and ministry is about where stability is found. It's found in Jesus, the one rock. And though Peter often is very unstable, his whole life is this illustration of where we find true stability, not in ourselves, but in Jesus alone. Because in Peter, in the end, because of humble faith, he was willing to follow Jesus to the death. See, humility before the God of all grace is the only path to stability, hope, and peace. But oh, how quick we are to forget that. We forget the way we entered the Christian life with humility, with repentance, right? Acknowledging that we're sinners by turning from trusting ourselves, from being kings of our own lives to trusting in Jesus and allowing him to be king, relying on him in faith, recognizing no hope in ourselves, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are so like Peter, quick to forget humility is the path we're called to. So what does that look like? Very practically, how do we humbly hope in God? If that's the primary thrust of this passage, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, how do we humbly hope in God? Well, first off, it means humbly embrace God's reign. We've got to humbly embrace God's reign. Verse 6, it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humbly embracing God's reign means that we're submitting to God's will in his word, no matter what the circumstances are, knowing that God's mighty hand, his power, can and will carry you through whatever adversities you face on the way to his promised glory. Submitting to God's will. Humbly embracing God's reign, also we see it in verse 7, where where he says, um, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
this image of casting here is only used one other time in this way in, in the New Testament. And it's used when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and they're casting the cloaks before him on the road for him to ride in on. Acknowledging his kingship. And so the idea here is that, that to humbly embrace God's reign, we've got to acknowledge, honor, and embrace his reign in our lives by bringing our concerns, fears, worries, stresses, and doubts to him. Casting our anxieties on him is a way that we actually honor him as king, knowing that he loves us far more than we love ourselves, that he's a good king because he cares for us. Then in verse 10, we read this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To humbly embrace God's reign in our lives, we must be resting in his gracious reign, knowing that when we fail, he can and will restore us to something even better than before. He's a redeeming, restoring God. And then finally, humbly and embracing God's reign means rejoicing in his powerful, loving, and gracious reign, knowing that his kingdom is unending. Like Peter finishes out this section, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's rejoicing in God's forever reign. So we've got to humbly embrace God's reign in our life in these ways. But we've also got to humbly engage the adversary. Part of humbling ourselves is that when we humble ourselves under God and we, we put ourselves on his side, we gain an adversary from the other side. And so we've got to humbly engage the adversary. We've got to stay alert. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. We've got to know the ways that we are tempted. We've got to avoid the easy openings for attack. It's different for every one of us. It's different for Peter than it was for us, but, but all of it, we all falter and are put to sleep when we become prideful rather than staying alert. And so we've got to hear the warnings of this word on a regular basis, not just from this pulpit on Sundays, but day in and day out ourselves in community as well. And we've got to be praying for strength. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Pray that you might not enter into temptation. And so we humbly engage the adversary by staying alert. Do not let pride lead to apathy. And then it's also, in verse 9, we humbly engage the adversary by actually taking action. It says, resist him, firm in your faith. This idea of resist here is not this passive kind of sit back and wait and ready to be on the defense, but resist is this active engagement. It's kind of the opposite of that like sports cliche you hear um, of you know, the best offense is a good defense. Instead, it's actually resist him here is really the best defense is a good offense. Like take action against him. How? I'm not talking about exorcisms and naming demons or anything like kind of funky like that. What I'm talking about is saturating yourself with the promises of God's word because this is the sword of the spirit. All right, so saturate yourselves with the promises of God's word because it says resist him. How? Firm in your faith, which has content, which has promises. And so resist him firm in your faith. Saturate yourselves in the promises of God. But then the rest of that verse reminds us of one other aspect of what taking action looks like. It says, 
Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We've got to invite community into the fight with us. We don't, we're not in this alone. The adversities we, we face are things our brothers and sisters have faced before us and are going to face after us. And so if we're going to take action, we've got to take action together. We've got to humbly engage the adversary together. Stay alert together and take action together. Humbly hope in God, church. Humbly hope in God. Embrace his reign and engage the adversary. That's the call of this passage. So church, where are you finding your hope today? As you walk through this unstable, chaotic world, are you hoping in yourself to provide some measure of protection from the storms? Are you seeking satisfaction and safety as the world defines it? Look, Peter's talked plenty about the unsafe, suffering-filled world that we live in today, that we live in as exiles, those who have chosen to follow King Jesus. As we wrap up this sermon and this series as a whole with the call to humbly embrace Jesus as King, I just, I can't, I could not help but think of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and his depiction of, of Jesus through the line of Aslan. When some of the characters ask about Aslan, what he's like, about whether he's safe, this is the response. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so church, I do not stand here this morning to ensure you that following Jesus is safe. That you'll avoid sufferings or persecutions. In fact, quite the opposite. But I can tell you that he is good the very definition of it. He is powerful, ensuring his rule and reign will last after everything else has passed, and he is gracious. He's the God of all grace, far more abundantly than you can think or imagine. He is worthy of your trust, not only for the life to come, but for each and every present moment and affliction. So humbly, daily, embrace King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you have come, that despite our pride that you came, even while we were still your enemies, you came and you died so that we might live and have life eternally in you. Lord, I pray that we would live humble lives, embracing your kingship over every aspect of our lives, leaving nothing, leaving nothing from you and from your control. God, I pray that you would just move and work in us, that we would be a people that are humbly and submitting to you as king, that we would be a people that, that, that walk in humility towards one another and towards you, that we stay alert against the enemy, and that we're able to walk through adversity with a stableness, a steadiness of hope and faith and peace that shows your goodness and your power and your grace to the watching world around us in such a way that people cannot help but see that there's something different, not about us, but about you and how great and glorious and mighty you are, God. So I pray that for all of us struggling with pride this morning, God, that we would, that we would repent of our sinful ways, that we would repent of the pride in our lives, God, and that we would humble ourselves. Holy Spirit, give us discernment as to those areas of pride or apathy or anxiety. And help us to turn from that and to trust in you 
King Jesus. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.